Gamma Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Byron Elton will join us to discuss carbon recycling. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the challenges to the world's energy supply are inexorably linked to the challenges faced by the environment. One potential solution to these problems may be found in the recycling of carbon dioxide emissions to form renewable fuel sources. Well, just how advanced are these technologies? Join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Byron Elton. Mr. Elton is president and COO of Carbon Sciences, a company which has advanced methods for converting carbon dioxide into liquid hydrocarbon fuel sources. He joins us today to discuss these fascinating developments in renewable fuel production. Mr. Elton, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, Charles. Good to be with you. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. I think this is a, really a very fascinating uh, topic, one I'm sure a lot of people are interested in, but maybe you can explain the scope of the problem that the company is trying to address. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, we're facing some very significant challenges, crises, if you will, in the area of energy and climate. The demand for energy that we have today is already at an all-time high, and it's continuing to grow. And so one of the pressing questions that faces all of us is how are we going to continue to uh, provide the kind of energy that we need, maintain the kind of lifestyle that we've become accustomed to and want to continue, and, and, and provide that for the rest of the world? And more importantly, or as importantly, uh, be good stewards of the environment as we do that. And so clearly, we need to be doing things differently. We were encouraged when uh, President Obama, in his inauguration speech, uh, addressed this very thing. And he said, I'm trying to remember this exactly, but it was, he said that every day brings further evidence that the ways we're using our energy strengthens our adversaries and threatens the planet. And so, and we couldn't agree more. And so Carbon Sciences uh, is a technology company based here in Santa Barbara, California. We have developed and continue to develop a technology, as you mentioned, that recycles carbon dioxide emissions into liquid portable fuels. A lot of great work being done on alternative fuel methods. We believe that our particular technology brings some real advantages to the table. And we've been anxiously engaged and busy with this particular technology. We introduced a prototype earlier this year at our headquarters here in Santa Barbara, where we're taking CO2 and making methanol and have filed a patent that discusses and protects that particular technology. We have other patents on the way and gathering terrific data on that. But along with our fellow travelers in biomass and solar and wind and tidal and everything else, we are very, very anxious to address these uh, challenges that you have uh, identified. And uh, just how much of the world's fuel supply do you think uh, you could provide using this type of technology? It's a great question because there's lots of ways to make alternative fuels. The question always becomes, well, how much of it can you make? Can you really make an impact? And that's one of the things that we bring, one of the dynamics that we bring to the table 
that we believe makes this particular technology very, very compelling. Because our feedstock is CO2 and because our process is a very, very direct path from CO2 to fuel, our ability to produce copious, enormous amounts of fuel are really very exciting. We've we done some modeling just based on the CO2 emissions from coal fire plants within the next 20 years. As you know, they're the single biggest emitter of CO2 and people that we're talking to every day. But we've determined that with essentially 25% of the CO2 that the coal fire plants around the world emit. If we had that available to us with this process, we could produce enough fuel to furnish 30% of the world's liquid portable fuel needs. This would be all kinds of fuels, not just the methanol. That's right. That's right. So, so essentially, the, the, it's, it's hydrocarbons, which are the building blocks of fuel, from which we can make all kinds of fuel. The holy grail clearly is gasoline, but we can make jet fuel, diesel fuel, and uh, all, all kinds of fuel. I see. How's this sort of method that you've developed different from other methods since uh, CO2 conversion has been around for a while, but the method is very highly energy intensive? That's exactly right. Well, as you know, all, all fuel starts with CO2, and we're no different in that sense. And so we have a biocatalytic process that emulates the, the natural processes. And these biocatalysts have a great appetite for carbon. And essentially, we introduce the CO2 uh, with water, which is our source of hydrogen. And the uh, biocatalysts stitch together the hydrogen and the carbon to make these hydrocarbons. Now, the, the big difference is, as you mentioned, there's people that have been doing this in the past, but the way that they get there has been extremely energy-intensive, uh, photolysis, etc. Ours takes place in a very mild environment. It, because of this biocatalytic process, it takes essentially place in room temperature, at atmospheric pressure, and very, very low energy. Now, the difference, and this has been done before, by the way. There's been work being done on this since the early 90s. One of the challenges is, is the ability to make this commercially viable. The amount of biocatalysts that are needed to produce fuel traditionally has been so enormous that it, has, it was cost prohibitive. And our particular technology, and I should mention at this point, our chief technology officer, his name is Dr. Navid Aslam. Dr. Aslam is the inventor of this technology. He's from Pakistan. He's actually living in Houston as we speak, but on his way out uh, with his family moving to Santa Barbara. and was an advisor to the company last year and, and has come on full-time in January of this year. But Dr. Navid's particular technology provides a protective environment for these biocatalysts where they can perform these very singular missions over and over and over again in a protected environment. It's actually an encapsulation without being depleted, without being exhausted. And therefore, we're able to produce this, uh, these hydrocarbons and this fuel at, at very reasonable rates to, to the extent that he can keep the biocatalyst alive, the cost of making the fuel obviously comes down. In the absence of the protective environment, you can make fuel, but it's really expensive and uh, simply wouldn't fly in, in the market. I see. So this protective environment essentially allows the catalyst to remain in use uh, almost indefinitely. That's exactly right. And that, that is the data that he's been gathering from the prototype. I was doing an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it, it, it was interesting. So somebody had likened, providing like helmets for these uh, biocatalysts. It reminded me of a Seinfeld episode where Seinfeld talks, and he says, why do kamikaze pilots wear helmets? Which I thought was very funny. And in our case, these biocatalysts are kamikaze pilots. I mean, they, they're incredibly good at what they do, but they die. They don't do it very often. So the helmets that we're making 
for these singularly focused biocatalysts really do work and they keep them alive. So you're absolutely right. It, it keeps them alive in some cases almost indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Are there any sort of byproducts to this uh, reaction that are toxic in any way? That's the other good news for us. Actually, in terms of the CO2, we use almost all of it, mm-hmm. and the byproducts of us are essentially negligible. So we, we're very efficient in terms of the feedstock that goes in to produce the hydrocarbons and what comes out the other end. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that you already have a working prototype of that. How scalable is this reaction, and how soon do you think you could probably try and organize a plant? Yeah, so uh, the the original thought was, and, and kind of the traditional approach is the, the prototype, which is a laboratory-scale demonstration, and, and we're doing it, and, and we're making small amounts of methanol, but methanol, stuff you can burn, and it's been kind of fun. Typically in the past, you then move to, after you gather sufficient data, a mini-pilot, so a larger demonstration of this. Because of the data that we've been receiving, really, and, and, and gathering since March of this year, we've been very, very encouraged. There are very sophisticated computer-aided uh, process engineering tools, these Aspen suite of, of software, that you can bypass the mini-pilot, do all of your modeling with appropriate data with, with the computer, and then move right to the pilot plant. And that is a full-scale operation with a strategic partner. In terms of time frame on that, you know, we introduced the prototype in March. Dr. Naslam has been working diligently and gathering all the data from there. We believe, and this could be a little aggressive, but we, we believe that certainly within a year with the, uh, the CAPE process, the computer-aided process uh, engineering, that we will be, have enough data and enough confidence with a strategic partner to then begin working on a full-scale operation. So early next year, certainly this time next year, we believe that we'll be in a in a position to then move to a full-scale operation. And that'll be co-located with a strategic partner. Our financial model, by the way, is to license this technology. Anybody that's burning lots of stuff, anybody that's uh, firing off lots of CO2, and we get calls every day from people who learn about the technology and, and want it now, uh, we're gonna have, they're going to have to be a little patient with us, uh, will be potential candidates for this technology, uh, which we will license uh, anywhere in the world. But it'll be co-located at the facility, in the case of a coal fire plant or a refinery or a cement factory. I got a call the other day from a gentleman in Missouri. Has a, a limestone quarry. I didn't know much about limestone. Uh, everything I knew about limestone, I learned watching Breaking Away. You know the cutters in Indiana, but they run very, very hot. Use lots of energy. And he'd read our our article in uh, an article about us in USA Today, and where we'd said, hey, a metric ton of CO2, we can make 150 gallons of gasoline. And he said, you know, with the amount of CO2 that I put off here at my limestone quarry in Missouri, we could make 600,000 gallons of gasoline every single day. So that, again, speaks back to the scalability uh, issue that you mentioned early on. But uh, that's where we are in the movie right now, prototype up and running, gathering data. Now now we move forward with the modeling, the computer modeling, and hope by this time next year we will uh, be in a position to announce a full-scale operation. How much uh, CO2 do you predict could possibly be taken out of the environment using this method? We'll use all that we can get. I mean, the, the, the latest figures that we know of, in 2006, there were 26 billion metric tons of CO2 emitted in the atmosphere, coal-fired plants being the number one, but certainly plenty of other contributors. We can safely assume that in 2009 it's, it's north of that, let's say close to 30 billion tons. And so if we look ahead 
20 years, the estimates are that it'll be well over 40, which in most minds of most climatologists and whatnot is, is a real tipping point for the environment. And so the, the, that's why all of these approaches are so important. So there's going to be plenty of CO2 available to us. And as I mentioned before, just working with the coal fire plants with less than half of what they produce, we can make a huge impact into a, a homegrown solution that has you know strategic benefits as well in terms of our being able to uh, use these carbon atoms twice, right? Once in a carbon coal fire plant and then again, you know, in an engine somewhere. So it's all very, very exciting and, 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 and a really great time for, for all of us in this uh, sector. Do you think it's possible also to grab the carbon dioxide straight out of the atmosphere as well? You know, wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. There, I was actually up in Vancouver uh, last week and, and talking to some people who are working on exactly that. And my sense is that is probably sometime down the line. We know right now that we have this extraordinary supply coming out of smokestacks that we can go get right now. Mm-hmm. Boy, if somebody can figure out how to get it right out of the air, that would be a great blessing to all of us. And, hey, we'll use all of that as well. You know, it's funny. You, you talk about things that sound far-fetched and science fiction. I was watching an interview with a guy from Harvard the other day, and he said, you know, there comes to the conclusion there's no such thing as science fiction anymore. He said, the stuff that we're doing now, when I was in high school and college, were discussed as, you know, flights of fancy and would never happen, and we're doing it. So I wouldn't discount anybody's ability to come up with some sort of uh, process or technology that'll, that'll address these problems. So somebody in the White House the other day, I love the line, I forget who it was, said, you know, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> And it's so cool to see uh, how many really smart people and companies, because we really have to, because these are pressing, pressing issues and enormous challenges, the level of thinking and creativity that's going into addressing this is really quite breathtaking. Do you think that there's more support for alternative energy technologies in the current administration than in the past? Uh, no question. No question. As evidenced by the inauguration speech and uh, certainly the, the campaign itself and, and what we've seen uh, since uh, since then, uh, a very, very favorable environment, and uh, we think appropriately so. You know, listen, it's tough times for everybody out there, but I will tell you that the conversation surrounding renewable and sustainable fuel is one that uh, is the top of mind for everybody. There's plenty of people interested in supporting it, uh, both from the government standpoint and the private sector. And uh, I think that it's all coalescing into a situation where we're going we're to solve this. We're going to attack it. And it's, it's so encouraging that it's happening here at home and the ability for us to solve these problems here in the United States and the export this technology around the world. As you probably know, the Chinese and the Indians aren't exactly as environmentally conscious as we are here, but they're, they're, they're going to need this technology, and we're, we're going to be delighted to provide it to them. Indeed. A lot of other countries have uh, been uh, working on alternative energy technologies for sort of a longer time than the U.S. Do you feel that now the U.S. is starting to catch up with places like Europe, for example? Yeah, Germany, kind of the poster child for all that, right? Yeah. And good for them, you know, good on them. And then, of course, you know, the price of oil kind of tends to have a big impact on these things. But, yeah, I really believe, as do a lot of people, uh, certainly Tom Friedman from the New York Times has written extensively about this, most specifically in his uh, Hot, Flat, and Crowded book, that we have a great opportunity. Not that there aren't great work being done around the world, but we have a great opportunity here with the, the knowledge that we have, the talent that we have, and certainly the will, and as you mentioned, the environment 
to encourage it, that I believe it's going to come out of the U.S. Now, in our case, you know, the inventor of our technology is Pakistani, but he wouldn't be able to do this in Pakistan. You know, he's, he's here because this is where it's uh, going to be incubated and, and nourished and uh, brought to its fruition. How, how do you feel your technology is going to fit in with uh, all the other sort of uh, technologies that are being developed at present? You know, a, a great question. Somebody was asking today, so who's your competitor? I said, hey, our competitor is time, <laughs> right? I mean, we're all in this together. So all of these other efforts that are going on, whether it be in solar, biofuels, whatever it is, we consider them fellow travelers. Uh, these challenges are so enormous, and the, 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 the solutions need to address the enormity of it. I don't believe it's going to be one particular technology that's going to solve all the problems. It's going to be a combination of solar and bio and, and our technology, et cetera. So, as I mentioned earlier, we believe we bring some dynamics to this equation that are, are really compelling. You know, we, we, it's a very, very, well, it's the most direct path of any of the approaches. You know, we go directly from CO2, the biocatalytic process, into fuel. The low energy is, is a huge advantage for us. There's ways of doing this, but as the folks at Madison Avenue would say, you know, the juices isn't worth the squeeze. You spend more energy getting there than you're getting out of it. That's not the case with us. The the third, and this is really important for us, is the fuel that we're producing and will produce is identical to the fuel we're using right now. And so it fits into the existing infrastructure, the existing supply chain and vehicles. There's no other need for any sort of changes in infrastructure. You know, other alternative fuel technologies like fuel cells and hydrogen require substantial infrastructure changes in order to, to, uh, to use them. That's not the case with us. And then the last, which we talked about, is, is the scalability and, and the ability to really make a huge impact, particularly in the transportation sector where it's liquid portable fuels, airplanes, don't run real well on electricity. They run on jet fuel, and uh, that's what we'll be making. Uh, well, it does sound very compelling. I'm curious if you just have words regarding them in uh, sequestration. Yeah, well, sequestration, you know, that, that's kind of all the car. I just got invited, actually, to go and uh, conduct a workshop at a CCS conference in Washington, D.C., which I thought was very, very telling. We think there are serious challenges and problems with sequestration. If it were the only alternative, then by all means, it's not. Mm -hmm. But I think it puts them back in kind of the same place as nuclear, and that is, is you're ending up with some really bad stuff, and burying it in the ground uh, may turn out to not to be a good idea. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, there are other alternatives. Uh, Margie Tatro from Sandia Labs made it, uh, testified in front of the Senate last week and talked about the benefits of, of carbon recycling as opposed to sequestration, mm -hmm. mentioned us by name, which we were very grateful for. So we, we think that our technology offers a much more beneficial and safe alternative than uh, sequestration. Yeah. Well, it is very fascinating. I certainly hope uh, people will uh, take a look at that. If, the, uh, if people want to find out more about that, where can they uh, look? Uh, carbonsciences.com. That science is plural. Uh, www.carbonsciences.com. We have all of our uh, most recent uh, information and comings and goings in there and an opportunity to sign up and, uh, and, and, and give us feedback. And we'd, uh, we encourage that and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you guys and, uh, and tell you about what we're doing. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, you joining us on the program. Again, uh, Mr. Elton from Carbon Sciences, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much, Charles. And you were just listening to Mr. Byron Elton discussing carbon recycling. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. I see trees of green Red roses too I 
It's time to quickly play the game, uh, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic renewable or expendable. And so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're a renew- renewable resource or an expendable resource, and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Mr. Elton, you ready to play the game? You bet. Okay. You're going to get me in trouble, aren't you? <laughs> We're trying not to. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, item number one, renewable resource or expendable resource, Donald Trump. Expendable resource. Well, you know, <laughs> first of all, I watched his answer to reinstating Miss California. Worst answer I've ever heard about the reason this was such a comp- uh, controversy was because of how beautiful she was. <laughs> I find him to be uh, insufferable. So absolutely uh, expendable resource. Okay. Uh, person number two, re- renewable resource, expendable resource, uh, Bill Gates. Renewable resource. I'm a big fan of Bill Gates. I actually got a chance to meet him one time. I worked for AOL, and what he has done with his billions, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I think is extraordinarily admirable, and this is a guy that's got his priorities straight, so renewable. Uh, Number three is Mr. Environment himself, Al Gore. I'm a big Al Gore fan, so I'm going to say renewable. I mean, this guy's been talking about this when it wasn't popular. He's never uh, changed his mind. Inconvenient truth, you know, uh, albeit a little uh, controversial, I think, has got people talking about it. I happen to be a big fan. Got a chance to meet him one time at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. Was very impressed, so got to be renewable. Okay. Uh, person number four, Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. Yeah, we, you have to come up with a third category for that chat. <laughs> But uh, clearly expendable. Yeah, that's all I want to say about that guy. All right. And finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Big fan of uh, the president. Listen, he's probably got the toughest inbox he's ever inherited ever. Um, I think his priorities and values of energy and education and health care are exactly what this uh, country needs. Listen, he's made mistakes. He's going to continue to make mistakes. But I personally think that he has brought a real sense of uh, fresh uh, hope and ideas and morality to uh, the country. That uh, and, I, and I hope people will give him a chance. So absolutely 100% renewable. All right. Indeed, indeed. All right. Uh, well, Mr. Eldon, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing the game, and of course, talking about all the very fascinating developments going on at Carbon Sciences. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. You bet. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. 
And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.